All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Thanks for joining us on this week's episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We're going to keep it pretty clean this week, not in terms of language, but just in terms of number of, of, of features we'll be offering you. Chris Newmarker has the week off. We've got a short week here at Device Talks. Thank you to our veterans for their service, and uh, we hope you uh, had a good Veterans Day. Uh, so we will be running an interview that I did uh, with Keith Grossman, who, uh, needless to say, is one of the more successful CEOs in MedTech. He's the f- now currently the CEO of Nevro. Previously, he was a CEO of Thoratech before its sale to St. Jude. He was the CEO of Conceptus before its sale to Bayer. He's been with TPG, the private equity group. And as we'll talk about in this interview, he was previously before all of that, the CEO of Thoratech. And there's an interesting story as to uh, how he sort of came to be involved in that company again. Uh, he's on the board of Intuitive and he's the, he's the chairman of Outset Medical, the vice chair of Alcon. So Keith Grossman is uh, is a true medtech leader and uh, really did enjoy connecting with him and hearing about his journey. We'll also talk about Nevro's spinal cord stimulation platform, the advances it's made in the space, the use of its data that it's collected over the years and uh, how it's helped people manage their pain and find pain relief. So important company, important product, and uh, really great conversation with Keith Grossman. Before we begin that conversation, though, I'd like to let you know that I'm working on the agenda for Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 10th and 11th. We're going to begin collecting uh, some proposals for presentations for Device Talks Boston. So keep an eye out for that. You can also go to devicetalks.com. Check there and uh, let us know how you'd like to be part of the discussion. Once again, that's happening May 10th and 11th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center. Device Talks Boston will be co-located with our Healthcare Robotics Engineering Forum and our Robot Expo. It's our biggest meeting of the year and will be a great time. So uh, we'll be opening for registration in January. And certainly you'll hear about that right here on this here podcast. So without any further delay, I'd like to get uh, this podcast episode rolling. First, though, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Pulse Technologies. I'm speaking with Steve Trenter. He is Global Director of Marketing and Sales at Pulse Technologies. Steve, tell me about Pulse Technologies. Hey, Tom. Well, Pulse is a contract manufacturer catering to the medical device industry, and we're located just uh, just north of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, and we employ about 250 people. Most people know of Pulse as a supplier of micro-machined components and assemblies. In other words, small parts or parts with intricate features and high tolerances. As far as uh, market segments are concerned, uh, core focuses of, of Pulse are specifically devices in the cardiac space as, as well as the neurospace. That's terrific. We'll hear more from Steve Trinter and Pulse Technologies a little later in the podcast. If you want to find that information out right now, go to pulsetechnologies.com. Well, Keith Grossman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate you having me. I'm excited to uh, to hear about Nevro. It's a company that uh, has been getting a lot of traction, gaining a lot of traction, and uh, has, of course, has a long story to history. But I want to get a bit into into your history and how you found your way into the medical device industry. 
many of your peers, uh, I think not many, but a few have wanted to be doctors and ran into the hurdle of organic chemistry and decided to go into med tech instead. You had a different path. You wanted to be a veterinarian, correct? I did. Yeah. I actually liked organic chemistry. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was planning to, uh, to be a veterinarian. I wasn't so, and, and I actually uh, graduated with all my science classes. And yeah. everything else. I, I, for me, it was more of a career choice. I, I just decided I was, uh, I was done with school. I wanted to go make some money and make a living. <laughs> so what uh, did you consider all industries or because you had that background in medicine, you wanted to go into the metal device industry or, or something similar? Yeah, I, I always had an affinity for life sciences. I thought the medical application of, of science was particularly fascinating for no reason having to do with family. My mm -hmm. father was a salesman, but not in the healthcare industry. And so it was logical for me to kind of combine the, the academic background with uh, an entry through a, a sales role because I had I'd seen that growing up and thought that was interesting. So I had a, uh, a friend who had graduated, uh, I guess, a year or two before me and, and got me involved in an interview process with American Hospital Supply, and that's where it started. Wow. So that was early on. What was it that kept you in the medical device industry? I imagine it was more than just momentum. You must have found something you liked about it. Yeah, I think we, I think we all like what we're good at and what we become expert at. And I think the more time I spent in the industry, the more I liked it. You start to have informed instincts about a business, the more time you spend in it. And that's in and of itself rewarding and makes you better at what you do. So I think there is something to that that momentum. But it's also rewarding. My I watched my father for years growing up in sales positions in heavy industry. And while I always had high regard for what he did, I could never quite find that affinity for, you know, corrugated boxes and, <laughs> and uh, you know, chemical reagents and all the different things he sold to heavy industry. So I loved being part of the industry and feeling like you could do the things you wanted to do personally, but still have some positive impact. Amen. I could never see myself covering money markets or things like that. I needed to really have an affinity for what I was writing about. So sure, I understand. So it seems to me early on, at least uh, you, you, kind of set yourself on a on a management track. You're vice president of sales and marketing at is it I'm sorry, Calisatech? Is that home saying? And then you went to be president of Northern Division at Eon Labs. Did you at what point did you say, I like sales, but I really want to be a leader? You know, I think that happened at American Hospital Supply. Amer yeah. American for for those of your listeners who are who are old enough to really remember American <laughs> was a was a great company and a great place to start a career. And they had a they had a habit of hiring a lot of their talent right off campus, mm -hmm. and they identified their talent very early, and they basically put you on a fast track until you stopped performing. And mm -hmm. it was sort of it was sort of up or out for for that category of of people that they hired. And I was lucky enough to be identified by my management team early on as somebody who they were going to start giving responsibility to. So they very quickly moved me into sales management, into marketing, and I kind of I kind of got the bug. I enjoyed being, you know, part of bigger decisions and part of strategy setting and liked it and wanted to sort of see what I could really do. And I think it was at American that I really got hooked on the idea of going a little further up in an organization. And you went to an interesting spot for your first CEO job. Thoratech was your first CEO job, correct? It um, was, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, that's the heart bump. I mean, it's a, a bold product. How did that opportunity become available to you? It seems like a, a really, uh, it's a challenge for a first-time CEO to take over a company like that, I would think. 
It was. You know, I've often told people, I think I got that job because I was the only one who would take it. <laughs> that <laughs> works too. Been, yeah, Thor, no, I, I'm I'm only partially kidding. Thorntech <laughs> had been around for a long time and yeah. had been in a clinical trial, in an IDE clinical trial with the, the first ventricular assist device for 18 years, Tom. Oh, all right. And this was this was a brand new category of product for the FDA. It was it was the FDA didn't quite know how to regulate it. They decided to put them in the bridge to transplant pigeonhole and say, well, we're not going to allow you to put these things in permanently, but maybe you can help patients while they wait for a donor organ. And that became the the applicable market for LVAD technology for a lot of years. Thoratech was was one of two companies that really created that market. The other one was Thermocardio Systems. And these were first-generation products. When I joined Thoratech, they had actually just finally gotten their FDA approval. They wanted a, a commercially uh, trained CEO. Oh, okay. Somebody could help them grow the business. They had been public and had been delisted. They wanted to get listed publicly again and ramp their product. So I got put in touch with the company and uh, didn't know what I didn't know about how, how difficult that road would really be. And uh, it was an exciting opportunity at the age of 35 to to be the CEO of a company and and see if I could get it back listed as a public company again and really make something out of the the technology. Listen, that ended up being a phenomenal experience. It's a I great bet. technology. The mission for those products is terrific. These are end-stage heart failure patients who don't have other options, and you're literally a, a life-supporting device. We ended up merging the company with Thermocardio Systems, our competitor, and picking up what became the HeartMate 2 and the HeartMate 3 technologies that now comprise the majority of Abbott's heart failure business. It was just a terrific run. I ran Thortech for about 10 years. And as you know, I went back to run it a second time about nine years later. Yeah. Sold the business to St. Jude. All right. Well, I, my, my ignorance is on display there. For some reason, I thought it was an earlier stage company than that. So you were coming in as a, as a commercial sales leader. But at that point, was it fixed or did it still need some fixing? <laughs> well, it still needs some fixing. At yeah. the time they were, the time they received the FDA approval, they, as I said, they had been delisted. As yeah, well, that, there's that. Yeah, we had about uh, we had about a million dollars in cash, so we, wow. we we needed to raise some cash, and we had about 35 employees, and we didn't have a commercial organization at all. So, <laughs> so it needed uh, some fixing. <laughs> yeah, so it needed <clears throat> it needed some fixing, but that's what an 18 year clinical trial will will do to a company. And so it, it really needed, it was sort of like a turnaround and a, and a startup all rolled into one. How do you go about identifying what a company like that needs and, and beginning that turnaround in a, in a cultural sense? Was there a, a clear first step for you going in or did you have to sit in it for a few months and kind of assess where things had to go? You probably don't have a few months to make that kind of assessment. We didn't have a few months. We, no. <laughs> yeah, we, we were uh, we needed to raise capital, and to raise capital, you 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 need to be able to articulate a strategy for value creation. I mean, that's that's just that's a fundamental. And so we had to very quickly decide where we were going and how we were going to get there, what we needed to do differently. Part of that was creating a commercial function, and part of it was building a management team that could scale. So, really, the first role for me there was designing an organization and bringing in a team who could see beyond where we were and and think about what this technology and this company could become. Mm -hmm. So we brought in and we did just that. We brought in a, a strong senior team. We started building a, uh, a commercial function, both in the field and in uh, marketing. And we started uh, building a commercial uh, organization. What we were really doing, Tom, was building a therapy. Uh, mm. This was a brand new therapy. 
Centers had to, to figure out how to integrate this expertise into their heart failure and transplant programs. CMS had to decide how to pay for it. So everything about that market was in its infancy and needed to be built at that time. Wow. So how did the merger come together? Was that something that you initiated and did you remain with the company after that? Oh, I did. Yeah. I this was um I went to my board about a year or two into the experience. And we we had a first generation device at Thoratech. It was an external LVAD. It was really ideal for bridge to transplant mm-hmm. at that time. It was not going to be a permanent device. And it was very clear that that permanent implantation was going to be the large market for all these patients who couldn't get transplants as an alternative instead of a bridge to transplant. And we needed different technology. We just needed to do something else. My note to the board basically was, we need to figure out a next act. We either have to be part of a larger company or we've got to acquire some other technology. But what we have now isn't going to get us there. So we we started a process that took us a year or two, and we identified a merger with thermocardio systems as being the most likely mm-hmm. uh, value-creating opportunity and way to really develop the market where it needed to be. So we put that together. Uh, we It was actually a reverse, reverse merger. They bought us on paper because they were a little bit bigger. Okay. We put the two companies together. The, the Thoratech management team ran the company. It was mostly the Thoratech board that governed the new company. and they came along with the HeartMate 2 and the HeartMate 3 technologies uh, in their early form, but with those technologies nonetheless. And as you know, the HeartMate 2 and HeartMate 3 really became our future. Sure. And really is now those two products, particularly HeartMate 3, now basically make up the mechanical circulatory support industry. Amazing. I think there's an old saying that your first-time CEOs aren't really given the opportunities that the choice companies, they usually have to take a job with some dog that might have some fleas. But this was a, an enormous challenge for you. I wonder how many of your network of people you talked to, of your mentors, what percentage of them told you not to take the job? Was it a high percentage? We'll take a quick break from this podcast to bring in our sponsor, Pulse Technologies. Once again, I'm speaking with Steve Trinter. He is Global Director of Marketing and Sales at Pulse Technologies. Steve, we're talking a lot about the neurospace today. Tell us, what does Pulse Technologies offer up in the neurospace? Yes, we are presently quite active in working with neuro companies, specifically in the area of neuromodulation through providing surface enhancement capability for their uh, their implantable electrodes through two primary means. One, uh, one is an additive technology utilizing PVD coating technology uh, that we have, such as titanium nitride coatings uh, or rhodium oxide coatings. We also have a femtosecond laser-based technology that is a proprietary pulse called HSR, hierarchical surface restructuring. And uh, both of these uh, technologies are intended to increase the surface area dramatically of, of these implantable electrodes and as a result have a, a very uh, tunable and, and positive impact on both uh, stimulation and, and sensing. And finally, Steve, all suppliers have had to uh, wrestle with supply chain concerns, uh, problems brought on by COVID. How has uh, Pulse Technologies weathered these storms? We've done a, a good job of keeping ahead of, of these issues and concerns and addressing them. For example, as it relates to raw material and lead times, uh, we've been 
very aggressive in reaching out to our suppliers, locking down raw material with extended buys, uh, often uh, extending out you know a year and a half to two years, uh, locking down uh, this material at today's dollars just to try to get ahead of uh, any uh, inflationary effects that could be detrimental to our, our costing. Purchasing equipment, uh, additional equipment, just to give us added manufacturing capability, allowing us to have more jobs running on the floor and just greater flexibility related to that. Overhiring, just uh, making sure that we aren't restrained from a human capital perspective, having extra bodies and people on the floor. And all of these these things together allow us to be effective and, and avoid any line down uh, situation, stockouts uh, as it relates to our customers and, and also have added capacity to uh, allow for additional growth from our, uh, our customer base. That's great. Thanks, Pulse Technologies, for sponsoring this podcast. If you'd like to find out more information about the company, go to its website, pulsetechnologies.com. This was a, an enormous challenge for you. I wonder how many of your network of people you talked to, of your mentors, what percentage of them told you not to take the job? Was it a high percentage? I don't know that anyone said not to take the job. Okay. Um, I think they said, look, the, these are the risks and these are the likely struggles that you're going to have. So I think I went into it clear-eyed from that standpoint. I think that you know you don't you don't really know what you don't know as a first time. CEO. Sure. You, you you come into it and no matter how much experience you have, you try to map what you've done to that particular role. And in retrospect, later, you always realize how difficult that is to do. But certainly at that early stage of my career, there was a lot more things on that list of things I didn't know. So I think naivety kind of helped me persuade myself that this was the right thing to do. <clears throat> and sometimes that's important. You know, sometimes knowing enough to to be able to populate that list of everything that could go wrong keeps you from doing doing things and taking risks. And this was a great risk to to take. It ended up being what I think was a was a great company doing really great things for needy patients and along the way creating a lot of value for shareholders. So it all worked out in the end, as they say. That's outstanding. So I could obviously spend the whole conversation on this one experience, but let's move on to Conceptus. That was another opportunity. You, you, this was a company that you came in as CEO. The company was already somewhat far along in its product development. What was attractive about the opportunity there at Conceptus? So the context is kind of important. I had, I had after ten years of running Thoratech and and still being midway through my career, I I told the board I needed to I needed to do something else, but wanted to stay involved. So mm-hmm. I stayed on the board of Thoratech. I spent some time in venture capital at TPG. Really missed the operating environment. And I had the opportunity to come in and lead Conceptus. I knew a couple of members of the board there. And Conceptus was already public at that time. Conceptus was one of two companies in the permanent female contraception space. So these were, this was actually technology that was spun out of Target Therapeutics and was used for a tubal occlusion, fallopian tube occlusion for permanent contraception. It was a Phenomenal product, great clinical data, very effective, a 10-minute procedure in the office, worked very well, was one of two products. We ended up actually, through an IP dispute, negotiating our only competitor off the market after I went in there. So we were effectively, at that point, the only device on the market. Great gross margins, great outcomes, and for some reason, the company had kind of stalled out in their growth, and their market value had suffered. They had an activist shareholder. 
And the board said, you know, that we don't understand why we're not taking over this whole category. We need to do something different. So that's when I joined Conceptus and we sort of recrafted the, the strategy, rebuilt the management team, rebuilt the commercial strategies and started to get some traction in growth. And uh, we turned it around. We went from what had become negative growth. And over the course of about six quarters, we had gotten growth up to over 20% and actually became profitable for the first time as a company. And of course, the market cap responded and and the buyers got interested much more quickly, I think, than than any of us thought they, they might. Bayer Healthcare ended up acquiring the company. Bayer had a big presence in oral contraceptives and in IUDs, of all things, and they wanted a permanent option and they wanted an in-office procedural sales force. It made sense for them at a great value for our shareholders. So the experience for me lasted less than two years, but it was a it was a rich one and and um experientially at least. And 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 I think the shareholders were very, very pleased with the outcome. That's outstanding. So let's revisit uh, Thoratech or, or or visit Thoratech chapter two. Explain where the company was at that point. Were you still on the board? Is that how you came to get involved again? And, and I'd like to understand sort of your thought process into whether or not this was a good move for you to to return to a company where you that you had led for so long uh, previously. <laughs> that is a that is a a, a topic rich with nuance. I, <laughs> we could talk about that for a long time. I had never intended to stay on the board that long. I told mm-hmm. the board that I would once I stepped down the first time. Look, I know that could be difficult. I'll do the best I can to be the the former CEO on the board. Let's do it for a year or so and see how it works. You left uh, CEO 2006 uh, the first time, and then you returned again in 2014. So a good deal, good deal of time has passed. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I and I and I had been on the board the whole time. So I would argue that it had worked really well, and the relationship I was able to strike with the incoming CEO, who I I played a role in in recruiting, was a good one. And mm-hmm. I had gone off and done the private equity thing, the Conceptus thing, and we had just sold Conceptus. And about that time. One fundamental thing changed at Thoratech from my first chapter to the second there, and that is that we we had a competitor, a commercial competitor. And I think the company had been, look, essentially monopolist for so many years, and it was having trouble dealing with a competitive environment and started to suffer, I think, unnecessarily with a what I thought was a lesser competitor with a lesser technology. And it became very frustrating for me. And I, so I went to the board and said, look, as the former CEO, I, I think I'm the last one to start stomping my feet about performance here. And I think maybe I should step off the board because it's, it's becoming very frustrating. That catalyzed a conversation. I think the, the entire board was a bit frustrated and ended up within a few months with a request that I come back in and lead the company again. It ended up being a great experience. You know, that's a tough thing to make work, the whole thing, stepping off, staying on the board, coming yeah. back in the second time. But it ended up being a really good experience, I think, for the company and for me. And the, the second part of that was really a lot of fun. But we really got some energy back into the company. We got some, you know, competitive spirit back into our commercial effort. We brought some new people into the organization, kept some of the, the people that have been there forever who were fantastic. Some of them, I think, are still with the company as part of Abbott. We kind of got our uh, we kind of got our mojo back and uh, began to pick up share growth began to come back into the business and um, much like the Conceptus story it seemed to attract acquisition interest much sooner mm-hmm. than I had anticipated. I told the board when I came back in the second time I look I I think I've got maybe five years 
that I can commit to coming back in for the second chapter. And St. Jude came along, really wanted to own that business and made it interesting for our shareholders after about after about a year, a year to 18 months. So it was a fairly short chapter two, as you've called it, but uh, <laughs> but it was a good one. And it was and it was the right it was the right home for the business. It's still the right home, I think, for the business over at Abbott following that acquisition. And it's turned into a really great business. Did you intend when you when you expressed your frustration, did you have in your mind that you'd like to take over at some point? Or were you genuinely just looking to separate yourself from Thoratech? No, I very well remember the conversation that I had with one of our more influential board members who I had known very well for a lot of years and said, look, I I just want to give you a heads up. I'm going to step off. Mm-hmm. And it's become frustrating for me to watch. And yeah. I think I'm the wrong one to lead that conversation as the former CEO. I never thought I'd be on the board this long. Anyway, I should mm-hmm. probably step off. That started the conversation with the board asking me to come back in. So no, it wasn't my intent to come back in, though I will tell you, once presented with the idea, uh, I became enamored of it very quickly because mm-hmm. I I had a, a lot invested in that business over a lot of years and wanted to see the business succeed. And coming back in to, to see that happen was a lot of fun. And, and you, you mentioned that St. Jude acquired the company just over a year later. You talked about some of the changes that you implemented as CEO, but can a company really change direction that quickly in, in a year? Is it just a change of attitude or approach? I mean, what can, what can happen in a year? It, apparently a lot. A lot. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, it really depends. Well, it depends on what the change is. Look, if you've got, if you've got a phenomenal culture and the right commercial strategy and what you really lack is the right product roadmap, okay, that can take longer, obviously, especially with a class three implanted device. If you've got a great product and you've got a better product, for example, than your, your competitor, but you're losing every day because of your culture, because of your commercial strategy, those things in a company that size can actually be fixed and changed quite quickly. Less so in a large multinational, multi-divisional company. But the nice thing about these single product line, mid-size medical device companies is you can affect change in a culture and strategy quite quickly and see results. It actually can be a lot of fun. And that's exactly what happened at Thoratech. Fascinating. So let's let's fast forward four years to, to 2019. I don't know if, you, if there was anything going on between your, the time you left Theratech in 2015 and joining Nevro in March of 2019. Did you just finally get to kick back a little bit or, or did I miss a, a sale of a company in, in those four years? Oh, no, <laughs> not, not, as a, uh, not as a CEO. I was mostly doing a lot of, a lot of board work. I, I was on five boards, I think, when a Nevro thing came along. We had I had been on the board of Zeltique, which which yep, uh, that's right. which to uh, to Allergan, and that was a that was a great a great little company and a great sale. But no, I was actually just active with a board por- portfolio, and I knew I knew some of the board members at Nevro. In fact, I knew some of the senior team that who were former Thor executives over here, and not unlike I think the Conceptus and Thoratech situations, the board had decided they needed to change a direction. And uh, the company had a great product, had gotten in a little bit of trouble from growth, from a growth mm-hmm. strategy standpoint, a little bit of trouble with shareholders. And I think the board just felt like it was time for a change. And it was interesting enough to me at the time that I decided to to kind of come back off the bench and uh, and see if I could help uh, Nevro through its next chapter. 
Could, could you just give us a minute, uh, an overview of, of Nevro? What it is that, that Nevro does and how does it distinguish itself from, from competitors? Because it is a competitive field. It's a very competitive field. Nevro entered a field that had been around for a long time, uh, the spinal cord stimulation field for pain. And it's literally a decades old technology and therapy for lower back and leg pain patients. And for many, many years, it was three companies doing almost exactly the same thing using low frequency spinal cord stimulation with an implanted IPG and using something called the paresthesia response, which is a tingling sensation mapped to the area of pain that the patient uh, was suffering from by moving electrodes around to the right position in the epidural space of the spine. All sorts of positives, but a lot of negatives that came with that form of therapy. It was the best the field had to offer but effectiveness was not great. It was about a you know 50% efficacy was sort of the standard. And some adverse events associated with paresthesia that the field had just decided they had to live with. Nevro came along, and I had actually known Nevro. I saw them when I was an investor at, at TPG. I'd known mm-hmm. them for years. Nevro came along with a, you hear this term a lot, and it's usually used incorrectly. But in fact, Nevro was truly disruptive. Nevro came in and said, we're going to think about this entirely differently. You don't need paresthesia. You don't need to move the electrodes around. We're going to use high frequency. The patient can't feel it. The doctor has gets to do the same thing every procedure. And they ran a clinical trial. They controlled it against a direct competitor. They were the first one to enter the market through a PMA route. They were the first wow. one to run a randomized controlled trial and the, and the first one to control against a low frequency device. And it was a home run. Not only did they get approval, they got a superiority claim, and they came into the market with something very different. They revitalized the market, they rejuvenated growth rates, and they began the process of taking share. All of that to the credit of, of the early teams involved with Nevro. Just some great decisions, a great technology. But at some point, Nevro had not evolved. They grew so fast that they had not really evolved the organization to be able to sustain that kind of growth. It just they were emerging as a mid-sized medical device company that was still sort of running itself like a startup. And they began to get bogged down, not surprisingly, run into a little trouble with shareholders and valuation. That's where I came in to Nevro. And that was my attraction to Nevro. I thought, this is a great product that can do a lot more, that can do a lot of good for a lot of people, create a lot of value for shareholders. It just needs a little bit of uh, care and feeding. I want to explore Nevro a little further, but I'm fascinated by the discussion about the size of the company and the difference between being a startup and not being a startup. I wonder, is there a a numerical number of employees where suddenly a company is no longer a startup and needs to be a more fully built out company? Or is it more of a a gut feel sort of thing? And and what is the difference between being a large startup, kind of operating as a startup, and being something perhaps a little more mature? What does it look like differently organizationally or operationally? You know, I think along that growth curve, you're always trying to optimize for the advantages and disadvantages of both large scale and and small scale, because there are advantages to both. Startups are able to move quickly. They're able to make decisions oftentimes via one person. They're able to think a little bit differently and uh, take the kind of risks that big companies don't take. They don't have franchise risk. And once they've decided on a path, they have to make it win They have to make it successful because they don't have other things to lean on. So there are a lot of things that startups are really good at. It's no surprise that a lot of our best innovation in this field comes from startups. On the other hand, 
as you start to scale, there are some real advantages to scale. You can fund things differently. You can make different kinds of long-term decisions. You can set yourself up to do different things for your customers, and you can compete more effectively in what is a crowded and competitive space. Certainly our market was. So there are advantages and disadvantages to both. I think everybody's always trying to optimize that. Big companies are trying to figure out a way to be more nimble, to make better decisions, to drive growth rate and, and push decision-making down to, to the divisions because otherwise they get beat by small innovators. Small innovators are always trying to figure out a way to scale so they can compete with big companies that have a lot of force in the channel. And everybody's trying to do that. So the goal of a company at the size and stage of Nevro was we've got it to set the company up with a team and with process and strategy that can allow us to continue to drive this growth to where we, to we, we think it can go without creating the burden and the kind of the slowdown effect of a large company without becoming bureaucratic and process driven. So Nevro was still running, I think, in my view, a little bit as a small company. We didn't have any process. We weren't really thoughtful about commercial strategy. Decision-making was still very congested in, in one position, and it was starting to slow down the company. It was starting to slow down growth. So the key for us, at, at least in my view, was to bring in a team that really had seen that scale, that had built that scale, and had done it before, to create a new commercial strategy, to begin to shift some of our investment away from just generating clinical data to having a thoughtful multi-year product roadmap with multi-generations, et cetera, which we're just now starting to see the fruits of, that takes a little bit of time. That's what we started doing when I came in. It wasn't about creating the right technology. The high frequency, the uh, HF10 technology that Nevro brought to the market was phenomenal and still is. It was more about creating a, a company that had the capability of growing and getting much larger than it was. Is there a challenge to getting the existing team and the employees who have been used to doing business one way to recognize that something differently must be done and to, and to buy into the new culture? I assume there are some bumps, but how do you go about doing that, about showing them that this way will work? It's worked before. Yeah, it's a combination, Tom. I think, you know, never had so many great people, and we still do. But I mean, even when I came in, just so many good, smart people that were a part of this company already. But people fall in all different categories. I mean, some people were really hungry for something different. They felt like they had the right technology, but they weren't winning in the market. They weren't picking up share the way they had been before. They were under pressure uh, from a valuation standpoint. They couldn't figure it out. And they had a lot of pride in their company. They wanted to see it fixed. Others, I think, were more interested in the existing small company startup kind of culture at Nevro. Didn't want it to change. And many of those people, not surprisingly, as we started to make some changes, left the organization. Sure. We brought a lot of new people into the organization, and we needed to be able to graft those new people onto what was a, a real passion for what we did and what we do differently, but still bring in some of that expertise that would allow us to, to really formalize and professionalize our commercial strategy, for example, and prepare for for larger scale. So people fall into all different categories. We had some great people who want to change, who are still here. Some great people who weren't sure about the change, but got to the point where they realized they liked it and stayed. And some other people who just didn't really want any part of the change and, and those people left. And I think that's just a normal part of, of this process. Let's talk about the development of the, of the market then. I mean, the, the neurospace, the stimulator space, 
tell me if I'm wrong or being unfair, but I think it's always had sort of a black box quality where we know we do this and we know this is the outcome. There's an uncertainty as to how that sort of works. And maybe I'm being unfair with that. Let me know. Nevro has a lot of data is really kind of pushed forth providing the proof that this works and how it works. But is there a difference from the the neurostim space and in a heart pump or birth control where you sort of understand the physicality of, of how a device works? Or is it all sort of the same? <laughs> no, there's a lot of there are a lot of differences. Of course, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of commonalities. I we think we are a it's an interesting question because we're a neuromodulation company, if you you know, by by dint of our technology and our innovation and kind of how we got here. That was our core expertise initially. What we really are now, and like all commercial companies, you eventually become defined by your customer and your patient mm-hmm. and, and less by your technology. So mm. what, we've, what we've really become is, is a pain company. Mm. Now, we have a neuromodulation technology, and we have, I would say, our expertise is second to none in neuromodulation and specifically spinal cord stimulation. But we, we really have evolved as a pain company. That is what we do. We treat chronic pain patients. We help the pain and neurosurgery community treat these patients, whether they're neuropathic pain from diabetes or, or chronic lower back and leg pain. That's who we've really become. And it's, it's less about being a quote unquote neuromod company and more, mm. I think at this point about being a pain company. That night sort of reflects the change in culture as well, being small company versus big company. If you're connecting more with your patients and you're the impact of your technology. I think it's definitely a different flavor of, of company. So where are you in commercialization? What is the competitive field like if you just give us an overview and how is Nevro faring against the others in the space? We've done what not many medical device companies are able to do. We, we, we came into a what was a relatively mature market populated by the biggest of the medical device companies. And uh, we not only survived, we not only got well past 100 million in revenue, but we're up to now close to 20% market share mm. and continuing to grow. So, you know, I think we, it's hard to come into a market like this. And regardless of your technology, we've got really big, very strong and good competitors, and they don't give away share easily. And so I think we've done something that's very difficult to do for a new emerging medical device company. And I think we'll continue to to grow. I think we have we we strongly believe, and our data is pretty clear that we do have a better therapy, and we do generate better outcomes and better workflows for our doctors. And we have the versatility uh, to treat different kinds of patients, and we're proving that in areas like non-surgical back pain, and maybe most interestingly, diabetic neuropathic pain, hmm. which is kind of emerging as one of our primary growth drivers. We believe in the coming years. So I, you know, I think I think there's a, a ton of excitement here that, despite the things that we've accomplished as a new entrant in this space, that we've got a long way to go with our technology and our market presence. How big is the market? It's a, it's a large market, and it's I, I think you folks are just scratching the surface of it, right? It, yeah, it's you know it's interesting. The, the spinal cord stem market for pain is about a two two and a half billion dollar market. It's still a very underpenetrated market. I'll give you an example. Just the non-surgical back pain patient population, which is emerging as a fairly new subsegment of, of back and leg pain for, for neurostem, is probably something like a $12 billion TAM just looking at the annual incidence rate. There's a ton of these patients who don't have surgery as an option, but who have bad enough and chronic back and leg pain that they would be candidates for some other option. That market's only about 5% penetrated right now. 
The rest of the market are failed back surgery syndrome patients, patients who have had back surgery. They don't have any other options. They still have horrible chronic uh, back and leg pain. And that's probably two thirds of our business. But even that market is, is less than 20% penetrated. So there's a large total addressable market that despite all the years of growth is still relatively underpenetrated. And then there's this new diabetic neuropathic pain market where we are the primary driver of that market right now with our technology. And that we think is probably about a $5 billion annual market for patients who have had and have had for many years, no other options. That market is in its infancy. We're about a year into developing that market. We're as excited about that as almost anything we're doing. People talking about the medical device industry talk about companies like yours as being a, an alternative and hopefully a solution to the opioid crisis, to the reliance upon painkillers. It seems like a no-brainer to me as a layperson that this would be a, a preferable, safer route. But what's it going to take for you to make inroads in that regard? And do you do you replace painkillers or do you merely complement painkillers? Are you getting people off prescriptions or just helping people who are already on prescriptions? Yeah, in, in almost every clinical trial we've run over the years, we track opioid use over the course of, of the clinical trial in our patients. And in almost every case, we show reduction to elimination of opioid use in our patients. So we know that effective spinal cord stimulation, certainly ours, shows a reduction in the use of opioids. Opioids aren't a terribly effective pain management approach. It's just what's available. And so I think Yes, we're positioned as an alternative, but really we're positioned as an alternative for pain. And once pain gets taken care of, then drug use, specifically opioid use, tends to take care of itself on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. It's not our central indication, but we do see that impact in patients that we treat. They just simply use less opioids because they don't need them. And most patients don't really want to use them. And most doctors actually in our space don't want to write for them. Sure. I think it's just a matter of, you know, what options they've had historically in their in their arsenal. Well, it's, it seems that doctors are are hungry for for alternatives, so I'm sure you have them as allies. How are things shaping up on the on the payer front, the all important payer front? I know you got an approval earlier this year from United Healthcare. I think there was some sort of amendment that they would cover only folks who had had back surgery and folks who didn't decline to have back surgery, and I can understand those who wouldn't want to have back surgery. Where are you with with uh, reimbursement? Yeah, I would say overall, we've had a ton of success with payers. So first of all, spinal cord stim for pain has been around long enough that it's well characterized as a therapy. Payers pay for it. Medicare pays for it. Almost all commercial payers pay for it. They have restrictions in how they define the patients and who they'll cover and, and who they won't, of course. And that's the nuance that, that really matters. But in general, these procedures are being done in both hospital outpatient and ASC settings, the facility reimbursement and the physician reimbursement are at acceptable rates to cover the cost of the technology and, and the intervention. So I'd, I'd say overall reimbursement is in a pretty good position for these patients and for our and for our doctors and our centers. Now, as you begin to make changes in who you think you can treat, then obviously that begs the question, what will payers do? Mm -hmm. With, for example, uh, painful diabetic neuropathy, which is an indication we just got approval for last year, that's required a lot of heavy lifting with payers to make sure they understand the data, these new patients, why they should be tre treated. We came into this year, our estimate was about 25% of PDN patients in the U.S. were in a plan that actually covered PDN. 
between the beginning of the year and today, we think we're, or we'll finish this year rather, at not far from 70% of PDN patients being in a plan where they will have coverage. So we've we've made a tremendous amount of progress with the payers. We're doing the same thing with non-surgical back pain. And, and I think what you're referring to with United, it's interesting. Two of our two of our more interesting announcements on coverage this year have been United. On one hand, they were they were the first commercial, big commercial payer to say we're going to pay for for SCS therapy for these diabetic neuropathy patients. On the other hand, for non-surgical back pain patients, they said we're not ready to, to cover it yet. And so they had a they put a non-coverage policy in place. This is kind of part of the pathway. This is mm-hmm. the way, this is the way, frankly, the game works. Our job is to generate more data, longer term data, continue to educate the payers until they feel comfortable that the therapy is characterized and they should be paying for it. We'll get there with all these payers with non-surgical back, and we're making huge progress with diabetes, and our core market is actually already well covered. So I, I think we're in pretty good shape with payers. Great. And the final area I want to cover, and you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. You're talking about data. You've collected a lot of data. Data is now king in, in, in med tech and in healthcare. What are future applications for, for Nevro in terms of incorporating big data, either in, in treatment and perhaps in control of the device? How are you looking to employ AI? Do you see an opportunity for apps that are used to, to help a patient sort of control their own treatments? Uh, where are things headed? Yeah. Well, uh, stay tuned. <laughs> we have, as a company, I, I will tell you, one of, the, one of the early strategic decisions made by early leadership at Never was, was I, I think, terrific in retrospect, and that was to create a cloud-based data, uh, database for all their patient outcomes. We, wow. have a very, we have a very close relationship with our patients pre- and post-implant, and we gather a ton of data. It's captured now in between 80 and 100,000 patients in our cloud database and 20 million clinical endpoints. So we know what program they're on, when it changes, what their pain levels are. We have recordings of our, of our conversations with patients. We have a tremendous amount of really good big data that has to be the backbone of an AI-informed therapy or, or diagnostic approach. And so we've now decided to, to use that to evolve our, our therapy. And you're going to hear more. I don't want to spoil the surprise, but we're uh, our next platform is going to take full use of that data and an AI-based approach to, we think, kind of move our therapy into, uh, into what we think will be the future for spinal cord stem. And uh, you're going to hear more about that in the, in the coming weeks. Well, I would have to think just from that comment that your relationship with patients is probably tighter than many other specialties, even a heart pump or, or a glucose monitor. People live with these conditions and sometimes forget that they have to have the treatment to continue to thrive. Whereas with pain, you never quite forget about pain. Pain's with you forever. So I'm sure they're well attuned to their device and I'm sure checking in with you frequently to make sure it c- continues to provide them relief. Yeah, well, well, you know, pain is variable uh, yeah. from patient to patient, and even for one patient from month to month and year to year. And our product allows a tremendous amount of variability from a programming standpoint. So all of that combined means we have kind of an ongoing relationship with patients where we're con- we're always trying to optimize the outcome, and we have the ability to do that, and therefore we have a we have a reasonably long term relationship with these patients, and that's kind of part of how we get the kind of outcomes. That we get. It also means we generate a tremendous amount of data, and we have longitudinal data over these patients for many years. 
And uh, we're the only ones in this space who have been doing that and been collecting that data. And it's very powerful if you use it the right way. And we think we're on the precipice of being able to do that. Well, this has been a great walk through your life. I appreciate your, your taking the time to visit every stop. Thank you, uh, Keith Grossman, for joining us on the podcast. All right. Thanks a bunch, Tom. Nice talking to you. Well, that is a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Keith Grossman. I'd like to thank Pulse Technologies for sponsoring this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks to you, of course, for, uh, for joining us. Please do subscribe to the Device Talks Podcast Network. Uh, by doing so, you'll receive future episodes of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast, the Striker Talks Podcast, and the Intuitive Talks Podcast. We have a couple of those coming out in the next few days, so you don't want to miss that. Please also subscribe to the Medtronic Talks Podcast. They have their own channel, and you can find all of these podcasts on any of your favorite podcast players. And of course, it's available on the company websites and right there on devicetalks.com. We can also learn about Device Talks Tuesdays and, of course, the upcoming Device Talks Boston. Please do share this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast on your social media channels. And when you do, connect with me. I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. I am also on Twitter. If you're curious about my Wordle scores, they're actually quite impressive. You can find me there at MedTechTom. You can find Chris Newmarker at on Twitter at New Marker. I have no idea if he even plays Wordle, but he probably should. And you can find him on LinkedIn as well. Also, please follow Device Talks on LinkedIn and Mass Device. It's the best way to keep abreast of what we're up to and we're going to be busy. So uh, you don't want to miss a thing. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Stay tuned for uh, episodes of Intuitive Talks and Striker Talks coming your way and Medtronic Talks as well. And of course, we'll be back next week with another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. 